kids, you're dismissed to your classes, where I'm sure there'll be great discussion. Just to be clear, just to be clear, this study is not about money, so the title, Giving All That We Have, shouldn't scare you. And just to be clear on the second point, I do not have all the answers, as you well know. In fact, it's really um, daunting to speak on our topic today because it's so simple and so complex at the same time and because there are so many different traditions and so many opinions about what it means to worship the Lord. Showing that video was not meant in any way to be critical or judgmental. It's just kind of a funny parody of how the church, especially in America, has worked so hard to be relevant and non-conformist, and in the process, we've essentially become irrelevant and conformist. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a service like that. We've all been in them, and absolutely, the Lord still speaks to people and ministers to people in the services. I've been in many services like that where God spoke directly to me and where I was so blessed. But where we kind of approach this this morning is if the intention of the service is designed to manipulate or to produce a certain feel or a certain result, that's where we start to get into trouble. We never want to try to to evaluate the motives of the heart. We have to trust in sincerity, and we have to check our own hearts, both in leading and in participating, that our hearts are right and that we have an attitude of worship. But the the problem, really, that that I see in terms of the word worship, and we'll try to define that this morning, is that the externals have become the focus of what worship is supposed to look like. The externals have become the focus. they become the priority. And it's interesting and kind of sobering that that's been the trend over the last two decades, that there's been a, an entertainment approach, that there are sets and there's light shows and there's fog and there's smoke and there's an emphasis on production and and direction. Even in our language, we've moved away from calling it the altar, and then we moved to the platform, and now we call it the stage. Churches happily promote that the service will go less than an hour. I even got a flyer about that this week. This service will not go less than an hour today, just so everybody's clear on that. Because we, we have this thinking that if we push people past an hour because we're so busy, we just can't be bothered to spend any more time than that, and it's just get in and get out. And, and, and we've started calling it, in many places, a worship experience, like it's a ride at Disney, like you, you go on the worship experience today and Space Mountain tomorrow. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious, but, but not really. The reason that we have moved, very nonspecifically, very broad generalization here, but accurate generalization, the reason we've, we've moved this way It's because we've somehow convinced ourselves or been convinced that people will not come if we don't do this. In other words, meeting with the Lord and and being in his presence and praising him and giving and studying his word isn't enough. So somehow we have to alter it to make it more appealing. And I believe that what that's saying is that we have lost our sense of trust in the Lord that the gospel's sufficient and that the Spirit of God can move in people's hearts. So instead, we have to assist Him. And that gets us into very dangerous territory. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, 
said over a hundred years ago, and I think this has been fulfilled. He said the chief danger of the 20th century, that's last century, chief danger of the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, and heaven without hell. You see, our responsibility is not to eliminate the Holy Spirit in worship. It's not to override what He is there to do. It's to recognize that we're in the presence of the Lord and to stand back and to give Him glory. And then to let Him move in our hearts and minds to draw us closer to the Lord. Now in response, we give Him all that we have. And that really is what worship is about. It's about offering Him all our praise and all our respect and all our love. There are way too many examples in Scripture of what that looks like for us to be able to even touch on it this morning. So let me say up front, this is by no means a comprehensive look at worship. It would take us months and months. Our our goal this morning is simply to, to look at how Scripture describes it so the Spirit can speak to our hearts. And when we do that, it may awaken us a little bit. And I, and I hope and pray that it does. That, that God may show us this morning that in some way, in, in our individual lives, just speaking personally now, this is, this is between you and the Lord this morning. This is not me making statements or me condemning. That's, that's not the goal. The goal is, as I prayed, that our hearts would be open to what the Holy Spirit says to each of us individually and then together as a church, that, that this morning he would awaken us and show us in any way how we've been holding back from worshiping the Lord openly and passionately. And he may have to change this morning some, some preconceived notions on what worshiping him looks like. And that applies to any tradition that we come from, any, any desire that, that we prefer. Whether you were raised Baptist or Methodist or Reformed or Catholic or Nazarene or Pentecostal, whatever, it, does, it doesn't matter. Whether, whether you grew up in, in very reserved worship or it was more free or it was, it was just unrestrained, whether you had hymn books or, or choruses or you liked the contemporary rock with the guitar or, or whether you like it softer or louder or dark or bright or whether you like the flashing lights or you like it in an hour or you like it 90 minutes or you say, put the watch away. It really doesn't matter because that's not the point. And God needs to challenge us about what we've made it and how it has become in many ways about us and how we're more focused on our desires and what's more comfortable for us instead of giving him glory. Remember, the title of the series is Out of the Comfort Zone. So we need to be open to what the Spirit of the Lord says to us today from his word, and we have to, really, if we're going to worship him today, we have to be ready to be changed so we can conform to him. Now, all that being said, let's take our Bibles and turn to the first of three passages that we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to start in First Chronicles chapter 16. Even though this is a historical narrative, and it's in the Old Testament, it's mostly about the kings of Israel, it's amazing how pertinent and applicational this book is to our lives. I've really grown to love First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. In fact, I, I looked last night, I've preached 116 messages here since this church started, and one-tenth of them have been from First and Second Chronicles. That was not intentional, 
That's just how the Lord's led. It's a very wonderful book, and I encourage you to, to read it. Worship of the Lord is not an Old Testament act, and it's not a New Testament act, and it's not a 2013 act. It is timeless. Worship is timeless, and that means that while music change and styles change, and we're glad for that because we don't have to live through the 70s again, but while, while worship changes and styles change, the core purpose of worship does not change. And we have to be very, very sure that that thought doesn't get lost because so much of the focus over the last 30 to 35 years is the conclusion that the way the church worships, and I put that in quotes, the way the church worships needs to be redefined. And we're pretty proud, I think, of the end result, that it appeals to every demographic and that everybody's comfortable with it in some way. And because we have great coffee you can drink while you're here, that, that everything's good. The main problem with the conclusion is that we've put the emphasis on the person coming to worship. It's called consumerism, the consumer mentality in marketing. We've put the focus in worship on the consumer coming in rather than on the Lord that we've come to worship. And that's where the problem sets in. It's a very subtle twist, but it's gigantic because of what the Scripture talks about. If we looked through every word of Scripture, if we studied every passage on worship, we would be hard-pressed, it would be impossible, to find one passage in Scripture where worship talks about the person coming to worship as the emphasis. Every passage of Scripture, when it relates to worship, is about the holiness and power and mercy and faithfulness of the Lord. So worship is completely about recognizing the greatness of God and humbling ourselves before Him. And every time we look at an example in Scripture of what worship looked like, that was primarily done through three things. It was done through joyful expression, it was done through unashamed praise, and it was done through sacrificial giving. When people came to worship the Lord, they weren't thinking about themselves. It wasn't, well, what are we going to experience today? What's it like? Will I like it? Am I comfortable? Do you have what I need? When people came to worship the Lord all throughout the Bible, and even now into eternity, we'll look at a passage at the end from Revelation, when they came to worship the Lord, it was joyful expression, unashamed praise, and sacrificial giving. Now that leads us to the text in First Chronicles 16, because the foundation for worshiping the Lord is that we recognize exactly who He is. The context for this passage that we're going to look at, starting in verse 37, is that David's become the king of Israel. And one of the first acts that he takes as king is to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Saul, the king before him, had never placed the priority on the Ark. It had kind of been neglected. And David says in chapter 13, verse 3, that much of the problem that Israel had under Saul was not that he was a lousy leader or that he was arrogant or that he wasn't great in battle or whatever. David says the problem we had under Saul is that we did not seek the ark. Now that may seem like a strange thing to say about a gold box filled with artifacts, but David knew that the ark represented the literal presence of the Lord. So in not seeking the ark it meant that they were not seeking the Lord. God had become unimportant to them. Already the, the slide had started under Saul, 
and they had started to become indifferent. And Saul was consulting a witch, trying to get uh, some, some wisdom about what to do when he was pursuing the man that God had anointed as king. The, the, the country was a mess, and it had only taken one king. And David says, we've got to put a stop to this right now. We've got we've to break the cycle. We're going to go back to seeking the Lord. So we see earlier in the chapter, he builds a large tent for the ark until he can make a permanent home for it by building the temple. And after this long statement of praise, and you can see that in your Bibles, it's probably written that way from verse 8 down to verse 36. David gives this long statement of praise showing the importance of honoring the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And then what he does next really shows his sincerity. Look at verse 37. So he left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 relatives, Obed-Edom also the son of Jeduthun and Hosea as gatekeepers. He left Zadok the priest and his relatives the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place which was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering continually morning and evening even according to all that's written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. With them were Heman and Jeduthun, the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord, because his loving kindness is everlasting. And with them were Heman and Jeduthun with trumpets and cymbals for those who should shout aloud, sound aloud, excuse me, and with instruments for the songs of God and the sons of Jeduthun for the gate. Then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. Now, a few important details. Let's just go through verse by verse. In verse 37, David leaves Asaph, who wrote many of the Psalms, and his relatives, quote, to minister before the Lord continually. The word there means to care for the ark and to offer praise for before it. Now, that was a constant action. It wasn't one hour a week. It wasn't one hour a day. It was around the clock, every single minute. There wasn't supposed to be a time where the Lord wasn't being exalted and worshipped. And then, it's not just them, it says that a man named Obed-Edom, verse 38, remember his name, we'll look at him in a minute, and 68 of his relatives were also ministering before the ark. So we have at least 70 people, probably close to 100, maybe more than that, who are in this big tent that the ark is in the center of, and they're worshipping and praising the Lord around the clock. And then in verse 39, it says that Zadok the priest and other priests and his relatives were in the town of Gibeon, about eight miles northwest toward the Mediterranean of Jerusalem. And they were in the tabernacle, and they were worshiping the Lord there because the tabernacle was the tent of meeting. It was the place of the Lord's presence. And it says that their worship was to offer burnt offerings morning and evening without any break. Now, burnt offerings were a, a willing sacrifice. They were a voluntary act of the person to bring a spotless lamb to the altar, and it was killed as a statement of gratitude to the Lord, and its blood was spread as atonement or payment for sin. And the person would hold the lamb by its head as the lamb was laid on the altar. He would hold its head as the priest cut its throat. Because by holding the head, there was identification with the lamb as it was being sacrificed for sin. In other words, the person was owning up to their sin. They were saying, I'm the one that's guilty, and this lamb is being slain on my behalf. 
So the burnt offering was, was a sacrifice. It was admitting humbly, Lord, I am guilty and I'm asking for forgiveness. And God's response was to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness and the covering and cleansing of the person's sin. So the person would come to the Lord. They would come humbly. They would come admitting sin. They would ask God for mercy and God would offer it. Now that is described here as an act of worship. And it's the foundation for all praise and all gratitude. Make sure we don't miss that. Because worship that doesn't first recognize our own inadequacy, especially in light of the power of God and the holiness of God and the authority of God, if we don't come humbly before Him as we come to worship, then our worship will be unfeeling at best and a hypocritical mockery at worst. If we come in full of sin, we come in full of pride, and I'm just talking about in the church service, we come in full of arrogance, we come in not repentant, we come in not uh, not really sorry for sin, we're holding sin, maybe even while we're here we're in sin. Maybe we're jealous or we're lusting or we're coveting or whatever the case may be. And, and we're not ashamed of that. We, we don't offer that before the Lord. We just come in and say, well, now I'm going to sing, oh my God, he will not delay my refuge and strength always. And, and we just sing that and we... Don't have our hearts right. God looks at that and he says, it's a mockery. You're being hypocritical in my presence. And then we see in verse 41, Heman and Juduthan were assigned just to offer praise continuously. How would we do with that job? All they did, them and the people around them that were chosen, all they did was praise God continuously. Praise God continuously. And all the musicians were there and they were playing trumpets and cymbals and other loud instruments and they were playing and singing songs to God. And 24-7, around the clock, there was just praise being offered to God and praise being offered to God. That wasn't something God said, I want you to do this. It was something they purposely chose to do. So stop and picture the scene just for a minute. In Jerusalem... You have this big tent with the ark, the presence of God right in the middle. People are praising the Lord continuously. Eight miles away, they're at the tabernacle, which also represents the presence of the Lord. And they're, they're offering sacrifices around the clock, and they're playing instruments, and they're praising God, and they're singing. There, there, was, there, there was a high priority, that's an understatement, on doing this because that's, how important God's presence was to them. That's how important it was for them to be in the presence of God. There, there was no thought about anything other than offering Him praise. There was no thought about anything other than being grateful to Him and expressing that gratitude and being grateful that He was willing to be near them, not to mention how thankful they were for what He had done in their lives and what He was willing to do. And that phrase at the end of verse 41, look at it for a minute, really describes the essence of worship. It says, they gave thanks to the Lord because His loving kindness is everlasting. Because God's loving kindness is everlasting, they needed to worship Him nonstop. They needed to praise Him without fail. 
One of the greatest dangers to our worship and one of the greatest inhibitors to true worship is how we become dull to how amazing that fact is. Let's say it this morning. God's loving kindness is everlasting. Four words, four simple words that express everything that has changed our lives. God's loving kindness is everlasting. Say it with me. God's loving kindness is everlasting. The worst thing that can happen is that we become dull to that. Or even maybe worse than that is that we we, we kind of offer lip service. We act like we're grateful for it and, and, and we, we sing about how grateful we are, but our hearts and minds aren't really expressing our deep gratitude. It's not that we don't know it's true. We do, and it's not that we're not grateful. We are. The problem comes, listen now, when we're not overwhelmed by it anymore. When we're not humbled and broken by, by what God has done and we're not filled with joy that we're no longer under bondage to sin, that, that He's delivered us out of that and, and we become distracted and focused on ourselves and we become annoyed by, by something somebody's done and we come into worship and we've got all these things going in our heads and God says, I just want you to know that my loving kindness is everlasting. And you're so worried about all this junk over here and you're thinking about what it's like for you. Listen, it's not about you. It's about me. What really hit me this week as I'm studying this passage and and I think the Lord gave it to me because I never would have thought of it myself. That these 100 or 150 or 200 people whose lives were continuously given to worshiping the Lord, those people had lives just like us. Don't, Don't you think when they got home at night, that they were tired too? And they had to deal with, with stress in their family and kids who had homework and, and bills and all the, all the pressure of life. There had to be days where they're laying in bed and they're thinking, i got to go to work today and my sole job is to praise the Lord. Well, I don't really feel like it. I, I don't... <sighs> okay, got to gear up. Lord, help me. Right, come on, these are real people, right? These are not... These are not Super saints who have no problems in life. They had the same kind of life that we do. But apparently, they never came to worship with divided, hypocritical hearts. They they never came with this latent resentment. I've got to worship God today. And apparently, because the text doesn't tell us otherwise, they never came with a lack of true passion. Why? Why is that? I believe it's because they knew the secret about worship that it's easy to forget. Look at it. We can always give thanks to the Lord when we remember that His loving kindness is everlasting. When we focus solely on what the Lord has done to transform our lives, we will never be shy of saying, praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord, for what you have done. I once was blind, and now I see. I was a wretch, and now I'm your child. I was under bondage to sin, and you have freed me forever. I was full of self, and now I'm full of your spirit. 
How could I not praise you? How could I make that about me? His loving kindness is everlasting. Believer this morning, how different would your life be without the Lord? Do you remember that day when you gave your life to Him? When He forgave you and cleansed you and delivered you and adopted you and secured you forever? Was it so easy for us that we forget what a miraculous transaction that really is? Are we still overwhelmed by it? Or or do we kind of take it for granted? And now the really challenging question. Does our worship reflect our gratitude and joy? Or are we hesitant and restrained and and, and a little bit self-conscious about praising Him? And I know I'm stepping on toes, but but this is what the Word's saying to us. And I'm going to tell you that has less to do with personality and tradition than we think. I came, I, I am someone who is relatively shy, relatively insecure. I grew up in a traditional evangelical church with hymns and a pipe organ, and I rarely saw anybody raise their hands, and I like familiar. It was comfortable. I never really knew anything else. That's what it was. It was a wonderful background. I loved church. I still love church. And and if you would tell me that I was in a place now where we raise our hands, we sing praise choruses, and we meet in a hotel for Pete's sake, you'd go, that's not how I grew up. I went to college. I went to a ministry down in uptown area of Chicago. I went to a to a Pentecostal Baptist church that was mixed race. It was completely different from how I grew up. Can I worship the Lord there? Absolutely. Could I worship the Lord in the church I grew up? Absolutely. Can I worship the Lord here? Absolutely. Because it's not about style and tradition. It's about praising the Lord. And to really praise Him, to really worship Him, according to His loving kindness of how He has changed our lives, I'm not sure that we can be hesitant and restrained and self-conscious because Jesus wasn't with us. It took me a long time, and and you don't do it for show. Be clear here. I'm not trying to make this about me. Just listen to what I'm saying. It took me a long time to be comfortable with the thought of raising my hands. If I asked you all, and I won't, if I asked you all to stand up and raise your hands, you'd do it because I asked you to do it. It's not a big deal. You'd lift up your hands. It means nothing. You would do it if you saw somebody come in, a long-lost loved one. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. Depending on your ethnicity, you may be even more demonstrative. Hey! But when we talk about coming into the house of the Lord and praising Him, which is a command, by the way, to lift our holy hands before Him, we're like, no. No. See, it's not about holding back. It's about praising Him. It's about showing our joy and gratitude to Him. And it's not, listen, it's not just about whether you raise your hands or not. I'm trying to make a big deal of that. I'm making an example that this is one of the ways where we say, Lord, thank you. Praise you. Other times we're meditative. Other times we're on our knees. Other times we're so full of joy and we're smiling and we're happy. It's not about what you do. It's about what you mean. 
Uh, let's look at a passage that will really stretch us. Turn back to 2 Samuel 6 for a minute. 2 Samuel 6. Let's see what it really looks like when we express our love and gratitude and praise the Lord. Because that's the second action of worship. Expressing our love and gratitude and praise to the Lord. This passage is going to seem really extreme to most of us, including me. But if nothing else, it pushes us out of our comfort zone a little bit, hopefully to the point where we worship the Lord a little more freely. What David does here is purely for his love for the Lord. What David does here is purely his joy in the Lord's presence. Let's be very clear up front. It's not about dancing. It's not about putting on a show. It's not about some kind of dramatic expression of worship that draws attention to ourselves. That would be unthinkable to David, and we'll see why in a minute. But look at what he does. Chapter 6, verse 12. Now it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. Remember him? And all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Start at the end. Michael, who's David's wife, who's Solomon's daughter, Details the Holy Spirit gives us. That's not accidental. She's David's wife. She's Saul's daughter. She sees David leaping before the Lord and before the ark and worshiping in that way in the moment. And she not only resented him, she despised him. The word means to bitterly hate and hold in contempt. So she hears all this noise. She looks out the window. She sees her husband, the king, dancing before the ark of the Lord. And she bitterly hates him. Why? Because Michael was away from the Lord. She was proud and she was jealous like her dad and she didn't love the ark of the Lord, which means she didn't love the Lord. And second, she misconstrued David's motives. She thought he was being undignified for the king. Well, why would the king not be in his robes and why would he be dancing? He looks like an idiot, she's thinking to herself. How dare he disgrace us this way? She was thinking more about how other people would perceive David and by extension her than she was about what David was doing. She completely missed the point of his worship. The point of David's worship, be very careful here, is that he didn't really care what other people thought because he wasn't worshiping for them. He was worshiping for the Lord. So it didn't matter to him what Michael thought. And we can be absolutely confident, and this is where we have to be careful with, with this statement, we can be absolutely confident that David wasn't putting on a show and wasn't making it about himself because of two details that the Holy Spirit gives us. One is that this passage happens right after the passage that precedes it, which is where Uzzah, when they were transporting the ark and transporting it carelessly on a cart led by two oxen over a bumpy road, when they should have done it God's way, 
with the priest carrying the poles and nobody touching the ark because God said if you touch the ark, you die. But they were careless. So they're transporting the ark on this rough terrain and this car, and the ark starts to slip and Uzzah puts out his hand and God instantly strikes him dead. He was callous and he was irreverent in doing that. And it scared David to death. And he saw how holy and awesome the Lord is and how completely hesitant we have to be to disrespect the Lord in any way, shape, or form. So he has this background coming into this passage. And then we see a second detail from the Holy Spirit. This is in verse 14. It says he was wearing a linen ephod. That's not coincidental. David wasn't in his great royal robes, his purple majestic robe with his crown on and his scepter. He wasn't walking around like like a, a great king. He was wearing a linen ephod. That was kind of the dress of those that ministered before the ark in the tent. Just a simple piece of clothing, just a simple breastplate, so to speak. And David wears the linen ephod because he says, I'm not putting on a show as the king showing you how to worship. He says, I'm just one of you. I'm praising the Lord. And he's not making it about him because he would never disrespect God after what happened to Uzzah. And he's not making it about him because he's not acting as the king. He is absolutely overwhelmed with joy at this moment. In fact, we don't see anything like it in the rest of Scripture. But that's not how the scene started. David actually, if you look back a couple verses, verse 16, he was unwilling to move the ark at first. He was scared because he knew that none of them was worthy to be in God's presence. So he put it at Obed-Edom's house. Talk about an assignment, right? The king is scared of the ark, so he wants to put it in your living room. Is that okay? Uh, passage has always fascinated me. But here's the thing that struck me this week about worship. And again, get out of the confines of worship service. This is just worship in general. Obed-Edom wasn't hesitant and he wasn't unwilling because this was his act of worship. He was intentionally putting himself in the holy presence of God. And it says in verse 17 that God blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him because of his service of worship. And David saw it. Obed-Edom knew that God is holy and that God is awesome, but he also knew that God is gracious and loving and approachable. And as an act of worship, he said, I will stand in the holy presence of God where I don't deserve to be. But because God is approachable, I will be in his presence constantly. And God said, I will bless you and bless you and bless you and bless you. And David looked at it and said, ah, there's the key. When we draw into the presence of the Lord who allows us to draw into his presence and we delight in worshiping him, God delights in us. So David says, time to move the ark. Let's do it the right way this time. And as it goes up to the city of David, David is unrestrained and unembarrassed in his presence.
I wonder how many of us would be unrestrained in our praise and unhesitant in our service and so willing to declare the name of the Lord and be fervent about being in His presence if we knew that God would uniquely bless us because of it. We talk about wanting the help of God and the presence of God and the blessing of God and the faithfulness and the sufficiency of God. And God says, it's very simple. You get into my presence. Prayer and worship should be the easiest things in terms of getting out of our comfort zone because prayer is simply going into the presence of God and fellowshipping with Him. And worship is simply saying, God, you're wonderful. You are so wonderful. You have changed me completely. David simply does it. Look back at the text one more time. We'll change in a minute. David simply does it because he was so grateful. He went up with gladness. He sacrifices to the Lord. I don't know whether it's every six steps, verse 13, or or just the first six steps. It doesn't really matter. He was absolutely glad, sacrificing to the Lord, dancing before the ark. I don't know about you, but I'd feel silly. But it's not about the dancing. It's about unbridled joy. And everybody's shouting and everybody's blasting trumpets and everybody's yelling and the king is up there dancing around and praising God and they're so joyful over the fact that God's presence is coming up among them. And I thought to myself as I looked at that, how do we react to the presence of God? How do we respond Imagine this morning, and I know you've heard this before, but try again. Imagine this morning that that Jesus walked through that door right now. How would we react? We wouldn't say, oh, look, Jesus is here. There's our Savior. That's great. Jesus, we're so glad you're here. But I'm a little uncomfortable coming here. I don't want to overdo it. I know everybody else is running up toward you and falling at your feet, but I'll stay back a little bit. We're in the presence of the Lord this morning. Right now, in this place, the presence of the Lord is here. How do we react? Romans 12.2 says that presenting our bodies, listen now, as a living sacrifice is our reasonable act of worship. Now, I don't know about you, but presenting my body as a living sacrifice to God is much harder than praising Him. That's a daily cost. That's a daily price to deny self and take up my cross and follow Him and to be a living sacrifice, which he says, this is just the normal thing that I expect from you. And yet, we don't want to praise him. No, it's not a show. It's not people looking at us because we're loud. And there are no formulas. There's no manipulation. There's, There's no trying to work people up into certain feelings or certain emotions. Doing that makes it about us, and worship is not about us. It is simply about giving the Lord the praise he's due because we're overwhelmed by what he's done. 
turn to one more passage real quick. I know I'm late. Revelation chapter 4. I told you it wasn't going to be an hour of service. We'll just look at a couple verses and we're going to pray. Revelation chapter 4. We studied this passage in our precept study Tuesday. Again, it's not too late to be part of the class. Just come this week. You'll just be blessed by being there. Revelation 4 verses 5 to 11. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. In the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. First creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Uh, If we ever wonder what worship is supposed to look like, Here is a picture from heaven. Around the throne of God is this magnificent display of lightning and thunder as a reminder of his awesomeness and power. And day and night people fall before his throne in humility and gratitude with unending praise of who he is and what he's done. And the focus of their praise is his holiness and his worthiness to be worshipped. That is what worship is supposed to be. Coming into His presence, whether it's in a service or in a car or walking down the street, coming into His presence and being in His presence full of awe and wonder that He is the powerful God and He somehow cares about us. Humbled to be in His holy presence, recognizing His worthiness as Lord and so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude that we cannot stop declaring His love for us. How can we do anything less after what He's done for us? Listen, this isn't about trying to get everybody to act in a certain way or or trying to produce a certain atmosphere when we worship the Lord. Worship goes way beyond a Sunday morning service. It's not even what we do here. It is about the attitude and the call that we are to show our love for the Lord constantly. To openly thank Him and to joyfully praise Him and to celebrate His mercy and declare His name to all people until eternity ends, which is never. We're going to do that in heaven. We're going to fall at His feet and say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Praise His holy name. Lord, we love You. Lord, we love You. Lord, we love You. For eternity, that's what we'll do. And God says, I want you to practice now. I want you to get ready for what you're going to do in heaven. 
praise me. Honor me. Because I'm worthy. It's not about you. It's about me. I've done the work. I've changed you. I've transformed you. I've adopted you. I've secured you. Now honor me. Praise his name. Let's ask him for help to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you this morning to remove whatever area of comfort that needs to fall down for us to worship you in the way that you deserve. Lord, every single one of us falls short. You know that this morning. You're not bringing us this word, Lord, to produce guilt unless we're intentionally mocking you by coming into your presence full of sin and pride. But Lord, you know this morning that we love you. We know that we want to praise you and worship you for what you're due. And Lord, it's hard for us sometimes because of our background and our personality and our tradition. And Lord, those are things you know about. But I pray in a new way this morning that there would be a fresh awakening in our hearts that we would worship you like we have never worshipped you before. Not just singing, Lord, but in every single aspect of our life and being a living sacrifice before you and telling others about you and drawing into your presence in prayer and talking about you and worshipping you and praising you. Lord, that every aspect of our life would be an act of worship. And that it would be unrestrained, unashamed, never hesitant to say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done for me. Praise you, Lord, for your holiness this morning. You alone are worthy of all our praise and all glory. Lord, work in our hearts, we pray this morning. Whatever you need to do in my life, whatever you need to do in the lives of each person that's here, do that work, Lord. Convict us till it changes. That we would be people who worship and praise you all the time. Because, Lord, that's what we're going to do for eternity. We thank you and we praise you. And, Lord, we do love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.